Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Coming up on today's show, Minister of Advanced Education for the province of Alberta, Dimitrios Nikolaitis, will join us to talk about the situation with Athabasca University. The resource-fueled budgets in Alberta, now we're into a surplus situation once again. What's the danger in that? Does it really hide some deep-seated and ongoing problems? And the Conservatives held their final leadership debate last night. All right, let's update this story. We talked about it a few months ago, and it's back. Uh, The situation surrounding Athabasca University in our province and whether or not, well, not whether or not, but um, why they aren't um, having more actual brick-and-mortar operations, why more of the people employed by Athabasca University don't live in Athabasca. And it's all come to a head on uh, Tuesday. A statement released by the Minister for Advanced Education uh, set a deadline, September 30th, is the ultimatum given to the University of Athabasca to come up with a plan to move away from what they call their near virtual strategy, where basically they're doing much of what they do online, move away from that and set up a situation where more of the school staff actually live and work in that small community. It's about 3,000 people. And if they don't do that, the threat is their funding, and it's substantial, will be pulled. Their grant is about $3.4 million a month. So let's get details on exactly how we got here and what we need to see happen. We're going to chat with Dimitrios Nicolaitis, who is the Advanced Education Minister in Alberta. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Of course. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I I went through the Coles Notes version of uh, the ultimatum that was delivered to the school. Just give us the details. Basically, you're giving them a little over a month, two months here to come up with a plan, right? Right. That's correct. Although I wouldn't characterize it as an ultimatum. Um, What we've provided them is something that we've provided every other post-secondary institution in Alberta, which is an investment management agreement. Uh, The legislation stipulates that every institution must sign one which provides details as to, you know, what government's expectations are in, in return for the taxpayer contribution that that, uh, that is provided. And so we had originally asked the university to come up with, uh, to give us their best estimate and give us their plans, their timelines, costs, um, and details associated with moving their senior administrative offices back to the town. They, they have been based there for decades and been gradually moving away. And we've asked them to come up with a plan that would see us return back to having senior administrative offices in town. We asked them to provide that to us by June 30th, and uh, regrettably what we got back on June 30th um, didn't achieve that goal. And so we've had to stipulate in the investment management agreement that uh, we do indeed want them to come up with a plan, and uh, the funding is contingent on the, the completion of the investment management agreement. The details. Um, what does it look like? Like, Is there a percentage? Is there a certain number? What does it look like in terms of this is what you need to do in order to maintain your grant? What do you want to see? Yeah, absolutely. So what, we, we, what we've provided is three very specific asks. So number one, we've asked the board of directors uh, the Board of Governors, excuse me, to uh, provide uh, to government by August 31st um, affirmation that they've they've uh, given direction to the president to suspend implementation of their near virtual strategy. 
we're, we're also asking the Board of Governors to provide affirmation again by August 31st that they've given again direction to the President to begin developing a new strategic plan that focuses on uh, strengthening and reinforcing the institution's physical uh, presence in the town of Athabasca. And as well, uh, by September 30th, we've asked the university to provide us with a new strategic plan that um, uh, provides clarity that uh, 100% of executive staff would be positioned in the community by the end of 24-25 uh, uh, academic year. Um, has it always been that way until recently? Like, how much of a change are we seeing? Is it is this a dramatic move away from what Athabasca University historically has been? Um, it's always been virtual. There's always been an online component to it. How much has it shifted in the last, I don't know, number of years? Yeah, well, well, it's an interesting, uh, maybe just some quick context for listeners. You know, we're, we're not asking the university to change their delivery model, uh, that we want them to continue to operate online. That's how, that's their success, and we want to continue to maintain that. But in, in 1984, the, the government of the day moved the university from Edmonton to Athabasca to help create job opportunity and economic opportunity um, in rural communities, uh, primarily in the Athabasca community. And uh, I recall reading some reports from 1984 saying that, you know, this couldn't be done. This would make uh, retention of staff difficult. Yet here we are, several decades later, the institution has succeeded. They've they created and delivered Canada's first online MBA and have excelled from a base of operations in Athabasca. However, over the last, uh, I would say, about six years, the institution has started to shift away from the town and um, began uh, signing additional leases in Edmonton and in other places. Um, and, you know, this was raised under the former government. The, the town raised this when uh, when the NDP was in office, and the NDP uh, is on record stating that, you know, they they believe the institution should, should remain in the town and contribute to economic growth and job creation. We have the same opinion. Um, and you know, I, I wanted to give the university, of course, a, a clear sheet of paper to provide us their best approach, dates, timelines, how long it would take, what kind of costs would be involved, and give us their best estimate as to how this could be done. Um, but regrettably, they, they didn't do that, and so we have to take some additional steps. Now, it, obviously, the university uh, disagrees with that in some capacity. They say our executive team uh, will meet with them and discuss this. But going back to the June 30th deadline, they said they responded just as you asked them to with the details on a plan. Before the June 30th deadline even arrived, they requested a follow-up meeting with you and say they never heard back from you until they got this letter last week telling them they had until September 30th or they lose their funding. Yeah, I, I'm looking into that because that, that doesn't that doesn't ring a bell. I had a a personal conversation with the board chair prior to the June 30th deadline. Another personal conversation with the board chair uh, after the June 30th uh, report was submitted. So, so I'm I'm not entirely sure. I'd have to. I'm asking my team to look into that a little bit further. Um, anyone who wants to sit down and have a meeting is always I'm always open to them. So if they uh, want a meeting this week or next, I mean next week, you, you, that that's not an issue. They can have that. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, of course not. Yeah, that, I'm, I'm very open to that. But, you know, regrettably, what was what was provided on June 30th um, didn't include any dates, timelines, costs, implications or details about what it would take to get senior administrative and executive offices back to the community. Uh, that 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 was not present. They, they did indeed. Uh, you are correct. They did send a reply by June 30th, but it didn't contain 
um, the details that we were looking for, regrettably. Um, basically, this comes down to, and you and I spoke about this a couple of months ago when this all came to a head the first time around, it's 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 a... It seems to me like a misunderstanding on somebody's part as to what the focus of this university is, because the president is saying, you know what, we want to offer the best education we can, and we can't recruit talent if we have to tell them they need to live in Athabasca. And the response from you and from the mayor and from a lot of people involved is, it's not about that. It's about an economic driver and a job creator. I mean, is that a fair statement? Well, I think it's about both. And and again, let's not forget, uh, there when the, when the government uh, in 1984 uh, made the decision that the university would move from Edmonton to Athabasca, uh, a lot of detractors were saying the very same thing, that the university won't be able to recruit staff and it won't be successful. But, of course, here we are several decades later, and the university is an incredible success. And I want to see it continue to be successful uh, as, a, as a premier online uh, university provider. And I believe they can do that uh, from the town of Athabasca. And we're not asking for something new, again, They've been doing this for decades already. So we just we just want to reinforce that. But I think it's also important to remember why was the institution moved to the town of Athabasca in 1984? And what was the purpose of the institution in, in its inception, even before it was it moved to the community? The original purpose of the institution was to make sure every Albertan who, for whatever reason, couldn't attend a physical campus had a an access portal where they could receive a university-level mm-hmm. education. That's the number one goal of the institution, and they're continuing to excel. And secondly, again, based on the premise that the university moved to Athabasca, is to help bring jobs and economic opportunity to more communities in our province. So we have to remember that, and and I think we can do it. We've we've been doing it successfully for decades. We can continue to do that. If you're a student planning to kick off again this fall, and you're seeing this uh, 30th of September deadline and a cut or a pulling of the $3.4 million grant, um, I imagine that's a little unsettling. I mean, could the could the school continue? What would happen if if you pull this money? At the uh, you know, I mean, what's the future of Athabasca in your mind? Oh, the, the future of Athabasca is very bright. They, I mean, there's you know, as we've seen uh, as a consequence of the pandemic and uh, more online delivery, more more online and distance work opportunities. There's incredible opportunity for growth with the institution. And again, I think we can do that with a strong base of operations in the town. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, th- this isn't an, um, yeah, every single uh, post-secondary institution, 26 government-funded post-secondary institutions are required to sign an investment management agreement with government. Um, and, and we're asking the same of Athabasca, just like we've asked of all the other universities. And uh, of course, made some specific request in there about what we want the, the university to, uh, to to achieve. Minister, well, I've got you one last question. Um, uh, it came out yesterday. Changes to the full-time students grant. Some concern from some students. I was reading about the opposition uh, uh, asking questions about this as well. Why was the change made and why was there so little notice to the students affected by this? Yeah, we, we made some changes to that. The, the primary purpose of the Alberta student grant is to assist uh, low-income Albertans uh, and, and, and any other low-income individuals uh, access post-secondary education. Because I think we can all agree that that cost shouldn't be a prohibitive barrier. Um, and, and previously, it was open to, to both uh, low- and middle-income students. And we've seen some significant demand on the grant over the past few years. Um, I think uh, in 2019, it, it, it exceeded the, the available budget that we had allotted. So we, we've just had to fine-tune it, um, fine-tune the program, and really focus it on on, on low-income individuals to make sure that any individual who um, 
is encountering financial barriers is able to receive the support that they need to able uh, to to be able to access post-secondary education. So just the decision by the province to not increase the pool of money just to change the way it's dispersed, but no increase to how much can be spent on these grants. Yeah, again, it's primarily about assisting and supporting low-income students. And, you know, just, just on that note, um, I was also very very fortunate a few weeks back to announce um, $15 million in new spending over three years uh, to uh, to establish a new bursary uh, for low-income students. So, so there there is more money that is going in to... Uh, to student service, uh, student support services more broadly. As I mentioned, there's there's a new grant that we just rolled out, uh, 15 million over three years. Uh, not not to mention as well, 171 million over three years to create 10,000 additional post-secondary spaces across the province. So we're, uh, we're we're really focused on expanding capacity, providing more student support and assistance. And with the grant, with the Alberta Student Grant in particular. Just have to make sure it's 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 really focused on uh, low-income Albertans and and those individuals are able to receive the support that they need. Minister, I appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Thank you so much. conversation here. It's kind of interesting. I mean, not that long ago, we were talking about massive deficits in this province, and uh, that's completely changed now, and we're looking at massive surpluses, uh, and you know why. Um, but uh, it's become a, a question put to UCP leadership candidates. You know, what are you going to do? How do we get off this resource revenue roller coaster that we continually ride in this province? Um, and there's always... In the background, there's always the conversation of, yeah, it's not necessarily the revenue problem. It's a spending problem. That's more of the issue. We need to deal with spending. And there historically are times where you can see how that works hand in hand. The two of them go together, right? It makes sense. When there's more money, more money is spent. uh, And governments have a really hard time reining themselves in. And then the revenue drops off and they find themselves in a situation. Will that happen again? We're going to chat now with Jake Fuss, who's an economist with the Fraser Institute. Jake, uh, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you recently put together a great piece uh, uh, on just this. Um, let's go through the history of it because, it. I mean, we're, we've been here before. We've seen this. Uh, we've seen at least two periods where, you know, spending has continued to ramp up, correct? This is not new. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this has really been, you know, a couple of prolonged periods of increases in uh, per person spending in Alberta history. Um, you know, if we look back to the mid 1960s to the early 1980s, we saw a sharp increase in per person spending in Alberta during that time. Um, and then there was a second period of increase um, after the, the reforms that were made by the Klein government in the mid 1990s. Um, then we saw the ramp up in spending that started, you know, late 1990s, early 2000s. And it's really just carried over to the situation that we're experiencing today. Now, when you talk about that period back in the 1960s, I mean, the jump, you have to factor in for inflation to some extent, but not that much per person spending, according to your analysis, goes from about 3200 to more than 12000 in about 15 years. Yeah, that's right. And that's adjusted for inflation. So on a per person okay. basis. Um, you know, we do see that large increase from the mid-1960s to the early 1980s. Um, you know, spending growth really corresponded during this period with relatively high, high oil prices and an increase in resource revenue for the provincial government. So even though revenues were very high, you know, they were basically just spending all that money um, and, and it essentially turned into a massive increase in the amount of per-person spending that we saw in the province. And then, of course, we all know what happens when that resource revenue that sort of made that sustainable stops. Uh, we see debts and deficit, right? 
Well, that, that's basically been the situation in Alberta, you know, regardless of, of what oil prices have been if, when they've been high. Um, Alberta has been running persistent deficits, especially over the last two decades. Um, and when oil prices are low, then that causes an even bigger issue because your spending levels are already elevated to where they were when oil prices were high. Um, and now you're just running even bigger deficits than what you were running before when oil prices were high. So that's really been a persistent problem, really, regardless of the party in power or, or different governments. Um, we've seen this issue in Alberta time and time again. Um, and then the government is left to try and deal with it. And uh, we saw Ralph Klein take on that task and get us back to a point where we didn't have the debts and the deficits. Right. That was his lot. Yeah, so in, in the 1990s, there were a number of reforms that the Klein government t- t- took because they ultimately saw that they had to avoid a potential crisis. Um, they had to rein in spending. Um, so they made sharp spending cuts, um, and they actually reduced per-person spending by about 22% over a period of four years. Um, they reduced per-person spending to about $7,000 in 1996. The problem, though, then became, became you know, in the, in the late 1990s, early 2000s, once they started to rein in that debt and balance the budgets again, they really didn't have any guiding um, spending principles that they had going yeah. forward. So per person spending began to climb again. Um, and we really saw, you know, spending actually be- became higher at the end of Klein's tenure than it was at the beginning of his tenure. And it's continued since then, correct? Spending has just constantly ticked up. We've seen it come down a little bit in the last year or two. Yeah, I mean, it's really been a persistent problem, um, you know, ever since, you know, the early 2000s in particular. We've seen this problem continue under the Stelmac, Redford, Notley, and Kenny governments. Um, so, you know, obviously right now we do have a windfall in resource revenues. That's really the only thing saving Alberta from deficits in 2021 and 2022. Um, you know, the provincial government has shown some spending restraint in recent years, but, you know, it's really not enough. It, you know, so if this era of higher spending continues... Um, or per person spending, you know, it begins to climb again. You know, we're really only going to turn back the deficits once resource revenue inevitably falls at some point. And I guess that's what it comes down to, right, Jake? It's, it's a matter of, I guess, governments get lulled into a false sense of security. Like, oh, we can afford it. We can afford it. We can afford it. And they put themselves in a position where we all know eventually things will change. I mean, is it, what's the proper approach now? Well, we're in the midst of another boom. What's the best way to handle it? So you don't end up in that position down the road where, like you say, now we've sort of priced ourselves out. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things that, that governments can do. First is, is looking at what you're spending money on um, and how much you're actually spending so you can address that issue. Um, but on the, the resource revenue side in particular, um, you know, the government could do a couple of things. They could create, you know, a rainy day account to stabilize the level of resource revenues in the budget. Um, you know, basically set an amount of resource revenue that the province can spend every year. Um, and then, you know, you save some of this amount um, during the good times so that you have yeah. some money left over during the bad times. And at the same time, you could also make contributions to the Heritage Fund um, so you can transform one-time resource revenues into a permanent financial asset that can actually provide you an ongoing stream of income. So, you know, there are some steps that the, the provincial government can make today um, to smooth out this process in the long term, um, but they have to be, you know, very, very practical with what they're doing going forward. Yeah, exactly. Jake, uh, great analysis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me on. Did you watch the conservative leadership debate last night? Three out of the five candidates in the running attended. Um, I don't know how much interest there was, and I don't know how much we gleaned from it, but let's find out. Let's dig into a bit. We're going to chat with Chris Chapin now, who's a veteran of conservative leadership races and a managing principal of the 
Upstream Strategy Group. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time, sir. Always a pleasure, Shay. Yeah, so, I mean, the, there's a, a lot of discussion and a lot of fuss. I mean, of course, two of the, almost half of the leadership uh, contingent didn't show up for the debate last night. Do you think it was necessary? I mean, I, I, debate never hurts, I guess, right? I thought it was, frankly, completely unnecessary, Shay. I, I think uh, the rationale for both Paul Evan and Leslie Lewis to skip it, I think, was well justified. This wasn't part of the original plan of the campaign, and, and it, you know, I don't know if you recall, but frankly, the, the debate felt like the equivalent of the uh, the 2016 Republican primary had the, they had so many contenders yeah, yeah. Uh, seeking that nomination that they had they split it into two. But it was there was the debate with Trump in it, and then the consolation debate. It yeah. felt like the consolation debate uh, last night. I think you're right. I think it's widely suspected that Pierre Polyev is the leader. Also, uh, the, the the format here, uh, Jean Charest was caught on the mic saying, well, this is this is strange. I've never seen anything like this before. It was different. I mean, the Conservatives are trying really, really hard to reinvent the debate format, and I don't think it's worked out for them. <laughs> not, a, not at all, unfortunately. I, I thought, you know, I didn't think it could get weirder or stranger than the the debate with the, the paddles going up in yeah, and the trombones uh, and, and, the, and the trombone, but I think they managed <laughs> to find a way. It looked like a, an episode of in between two ferns last night, uh, or then sitting around a, a kitchen table having a discussion. So I, I don't know what the party was thinking. It looked like they scrambled to organize this. It felt like they scrambled to organize this. And ultimately that's what the product turned out to, to be. Did anything meaningful come out of it? I mean, they did actually talk about some issues. I, I don't think anything meaningful came out of it because I don't think anybody was paying attention. I, yeah. I mean, the, the entire narrative, the entire discussion about this debate was was about the fact that uh, Pierre and Leslie skipped it uh, and, and the $50,000 fines that their campaigns were willing to, to eat. So, I, I mean, unfortunately, I, I think the party made it more of a spectacle about who wasn't there than, than the actual topics that were discussed. And, uh, you know, and when you actually scrape together a, a debate like this, it, it wasn't any surprise that I think at one point their Facebook Live peaked at like 300 viewers really? uh, o- online. Yeah, and I mean, you, you contrast that to, to Polyev, uh, I, I think, well-planned and well-executed a, a rally at the exact same time. I, his Facebook Live had a couple thousand people tuning in. So I, I think that really spoke volumes to just the energy of, of the respective campaigns in this race. And and I, I think we're about to see a, a pretty uh, a pretty resounding win for, for Polyev uh, once all the ballots are cast. Yeah, it certainly does look that way, I mean, based on all the indicators that we've seen. So with him deciding to not go yesterday and sort of being really scornful about why he's not going, um, what, what's the thinking there? Is it just, hey, I'm in a position where it, it can't benefit me in any way. It could possibly hurt me. So why would I even mess around with this? I think it's exactly that, Shay. I, I think uh, there's a lot of very smart people around the, the Polyev uh, campaign that, that understand that debates can do as much harm, if not more harm, than they can do good. Uh, I think back to uh, Stefan Dion was, you know, it was a, a leader's debate that the, the clip from, you know, do you think it's easy to make priorities came from. That was a, that was an extra leadership, or that was during a leadership debate. Uh, and the Conservatives used that and, and absolutely destroyed him in attack ad. So uh, I, I think we, we knew what was going to happen if, Sheree and Polly have teed off again. It was going to be very mean. It was going to be very angry between the two camps. And if I'm Polly and it's only cost me $50,000 to skip it and avoid that potential scrutiny and frankly just the attack that Sheree was going to level and, and, and maybe others were going to level against them and provide uh, fodder for, for the Liberals in the next election campaign, I, I think it's probably justified skipping it. Yeah, and Chris, when I was talking about this yesterday, and I was listening, I asked listeners if they cared if they were going to be involved, and a lot of them said, uh, a bunch of them actually texted in and said, you know what, I voted two weeks ago. I don't understand why they're doing this. I've already cast my ballot, for God's sake. So, I mean, the timing of this whole thing is, it makes no sense either. 
Well, and I think that was exactly the justification that uh, Pierre Polyev's camp put out. I think it was a statement from whether it was either from Jenny Byrne yeah. or no Jenny Byrne from his campaign had put out was saying we're in the middle of getting out the vote. And it, same goes with myself. You know, I, I just voted yesterday. I finally photocopied my license and sent in my ballot. But I, I don't understand the purpose. The, the debates are, have always kind of been structured before the membership cut off. So, so prospective members can get an idea of what's on, on the on the ballot yeah. ultimately. Yeah. But the, just the way it was organized, I know the, the party said they sent out a survey to, to party members who resoundingly said that they wanted this debate. I don't, I don't recall, I'm a party member, I don't recall ever seeing that, that membership survey, although admittedly I ignore all care, but the, the spam emails the party sends out. But I don't know anybody that was resoundingly calling for another debate other than the, frankly, the three camps that were sitting around that uh, kitchen table last night. The one thing that people seem to be talking about the morning after, and uh, it's not even really debate-related, it did come up in the debate, and that's Jean Charest's future, whether he's going to stick around, what his plans are if he doesn't win the leadership. He's been completely non-committal, which, by all accounts, I mean, that's a no, right? I mean, if he's going to stick around, he would say, yeah, I'm going to stick around. He'd be full-throated and saying that's the plan. By not answering, isn't he saying, no, I'm not going to stick around? It certainly, it certainly feels that way, Shay. I, I think uh, I think he's been pretty clear without saying it. Uh, everybody knows, and I, I don't think he realizes that that's hurting him. You know, I think uh, to his credit, uh, Patrick Brown had already laid the seeds for his exit before the party disqualified him. He was quite upfront that said, "I wouldn't run for uh, a party led by Pierre Polyev." Uh, I, I just don't understand why Sheree doesn't use the same language. He clearly has no interest in, in running again uh, for the party. And uh, I, I, frankly, I think that's probably the case just about depending on that. anybody who wins this race if it wasn't him. Um, I, I think, and, and party members uh, can smell that from a mile away. And I, I think the, the evasion from answering the question and being upfront and just saying, yes, no, I, I have a plan on leaving this party, but I don't plan on running under Pierre Paul I don't understand the complication here. So the question is, we're about a month away from this all being wrapped up September 10th. Um, when we take a look at the concerns that a lot of people had, including Sheree and HSN talking about, you know what, we're tearing ourselves apart throughout this campaign. The division is only getting deeper, and then we're going to have to pivot and be united to head into the election. What do you think the shape is? There was a lot of talk about unity around that table last night and making sure everybody is united. Where do you think the party stands as we head into the final days here? Has damage been done? Uh, there's always damage done in the leadership race. Uh, there's always animosity. I, I always found that it's, it's very much at the, the staff level. Uh, I, you know, it, it gets bitter. Each side, each camp's worked hard, wants to win. Uh, they say nasty things throughout, and they they hold grudges against each other. Uh, many hold them for years and years. But I don't think there's the amount of uh, lack or the lack of unity that some of these campaigns are, are talking about. I, I think you look at the, we're, you know, the. I think Pierre Poilievre has the majority of caucus endorsing him. He is not going to have a tough time leading a, a caucus if he's elected leader. Uh, I think the, the endorsement by Harper was a, a pretty big symbol of, of unity within the party that, uh, you know, somebody who most conservative party members still very much respect uh, endorsing Pierre, I think really was the the cherry on top of his uh, his Sunday that's been a very well executed campaign. So I, I don't I don't think there's going to be a, a lack of unity after September 10th. I think the bigger problem might be, like I said, uh, bringing some of the, the folks who went and ran some of these different campaigns yeah. back into the tent. But otherwise, I think the, the Conservative Party, you just look at the fundraising numbers that were, were released uh, earlier this week. And I mean, I think uh, not notwithstanding just Polyev's numbers, but the party as a whole uh, outpacing the Liberals, I think almost by two to one dollars uh, fundraise that this party is ready to, to go fight the next election, whenever that may be. 
uh, and I think they're well positioned to uh, to prevent the United Front. Chris, thank you so much for your insight. As always, appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.